Hi everyone, welcome to Type Talks. Today we have five INTPs and I'll let them introduce themselves. So Spacey, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? I am Spacey. I've been studying typology for like four to five years now. Um, a couple years into that, I found the Talking with Famous People community. So I guess I would say I kind of branched off of that. But uh, I don't really like Eric Strauss that much anymore, to be honest with you. So. <laughs> Uh, now I'm on my own. So, you know, I do typing sessions and occasionally if the mood strikes me, I upload a video just about theory in general. I try to focus on like things that people may believe about certain things that aren't actually true. I try to address certain misconceptions, I guess, more than anything else. Oh yeah, I'm a 954, 911. Very cool. And uh, Anthony, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm Spacey's friend. I met him at also talking with famous people like on Eric's channel. Um, I've also been, you know, into the typology communities for like four or five years. Um, got really, really deep into Enneagram as of the last few years as well. Um, and sort of had a falling out with some of the communities, but have been wondering if I should like, start up my own channel or um, primarily related to Enneagram or just typology stuff in general. Um, I am also a 911. Very cool. Yeah, Stacy told me you're really great at the Enneagram. <laughs> and Tim, would you like to give us a few words about yourself? Sure, I'm Tim. Um... I've been into typology for a couple years now, and uh, as far as Enneagram, Enneagram goes, I, I don't really have a type that I strongly identify with, but most people uh, see me as a five. Very cool. And Joel, would you like to tell us a bit about you? Sure. I'm Joel, and I'm an INTP, obviously, and I've been in type, into typology for, well, probably since I was about 19. So going on more than 20 years and, um, but I've just kind of dabbled in it off and on and probably within the last five years have gotten much more deeply into it with the cognitive functions and um, other typology systems like the Enneagram, things like that. Um, I'm not as familiar with the Enneagram as I am with Myers-Briggs, but uh, I usually identify as a five wing, wing six and I mean five wing four, right? Yeah and social sexual but that's that's all i know about that <laughs> awesome and dave would you like to give us an intro <laughs> hi yes i'm dave i'm an intp like the rest of us i am i've been into typology maybe two and a half years i'm a five wing for sexual self-preservation that's very interesting uh, <laughs> yeah, good to know, good to know. <laughs> so it's nice to have all of these INTPs in one spot, uh, and it's a pleasure to know you all. And so my first question for you guys is, how do you spot an INTP in the wild? <laughs> you don't. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they're either in hiding or camouflage or, yeah. but, but when, they, when they when they start talking, you're probably going to 
I mean, I mean, I guess clearly that's not exclusive to INTPs, but um, you're going to find someone who makes probably a lot of self disclaimers concerning the accuracy of what they're about to say in a given set of knowledge, so as to remain internally and logically consistent in their statements and their output. And um, that's, you're, you're going to notice a bit of a taxing quality internally, like within them when they try to both, you know, just formulate arguments and like organize themselves, I suppose. It's a bit vague and not exactly exclusive to INTPs, but I think that's definitely a, a strong clue. Yeah, super true about the disclaimers. Um, yeah. So, Dave, what's your opinion on all of this? <laughs> How do I spot an INTP in the wild? I would say they're mostly dry, very into the nuance of something, into, well, that is, that's correct, but there are other angles to it that you're not considering. Um, generally socially, socially awkward, as we're younger, and maybe even as we're older, um, stating the truth of something, compelled to say what is true, even though it upsets the social vibe. I would say a lot of the time we're we're like deceptively plain looking, maybe in the way that we dress or appear, and we're usually by ourselves. So if you see us in the wild, we're probably not in a group of people. So if you're just trying to spot us real quick, that's what I would go by. I love that. So Tim, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I mean, uh, noticing INTPs is a lot like noticing any type, really. Um, the the hallmarks are TI and NE. So if you if you meet someone that uh, seems to be pretty conceptual in the way that they're oriented to the world and uh, tends to uh, make decisions in a very thinkery way, there's a good chance that they're an INTP. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a quite cerebral type in the way that they approach themselves, in the way that they approach things and orient themselves in their environments. And it's, it's somewhat not involved at the same time. So, so true. How about you, Joel? Well, I agree with what everyone else is saying for the most part. Um, if any, if, if, if our personality hacker um, class was any indication in small sample size, none of us were taking notes. So this is also possibly something, you know, a person who's would rather pay attention and get as much out of the environment than be taking notes, you know? And, and definitely the thing about being alone, like, like it's just very easy for me to, like when I was in, um, or visiting another city to just go off on my own and do my own thing. I don't need to be with a group to feel like I'm able to get the full experience. Um, not that that wouldn't be nice, but uh, it's not necessary. Can I comment on what Joel said? He's probably made, right about many, but in terms of what, how people are different, um, I took diverse notes and I hate going to new cities alone. <laughs> That's funny. Exactly. I'm with Joel on that stuff. You know, I, I had a thought that simultaneously in the same way that we don't really feel like taking notes, we don't seem to like taking pictures quite so much as other people either. Any kind of thing like that. We don't need to 
It's all in here. Exactly. That reminds me, uh, like, Tim doesn't have, like, family pictures in his places because he just doesn't, like, take them or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't uh, so much about family pictures. It's just, like, a, a friend of mine who is an ISFJ made that comment upon visiting my place. If you, you've lived here for how many years and you have no photos whatsoever on the wall. And he actually mm. printed out a bunch of photos from events that we had been to together and gave them to me. And then I realized I actually really like having this. Hmm. Why didn't I know that? So yeah, that's not something I would think to do for myself, but something that is good. Yeah, it's like uh, maybe you need people to add the human people element to your life. And it's like nice when you have it, but you, you, your natural instinct isn't to like include it. But like when it, when you do, it's like, oh, this feels so nice. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Um, so very cool. Um, and so my next question for you guys is, what are fictional and or real life INTPs that you relate to? Well, for me, like there's a lot of the ones that are in fiction are typically very like stereotypical. Uh, but I feel like Chidi from The Good Place is an INTP. I'm not certain, but he definitely fits the, the, the classic stereotype, this bookworm. He's very indecisive when it comes to especially ethical matters, but very interested in, like that's a extreme interest of his, um, things like that. And and he's just a fascinating character, someone I, I very much identify with, even if it is a, a stereotype. To go really um, cliche, Einstein. And I think of that as a person who's really wrapped up into his work and doesn't care about things like pictures on the wall or that what other people consider normal human behavior. The absent-minded professor, he's so wrapped up in his work that the rest of it is, I don't want to say irrelevant, but nowhere near as important. Yeah, I think that that absent-minded professor archetype is pretty, pretty standard middle of the road INTP. Like, um, I wouldn't say that, you know, all INTPs embody that, but the people who do embody that tend to be INTPs. I'm honestly really struggling to think of any INTPs, real or fake, that I relate to. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of and there, there have been some musicians that I remember seeing and reading their lyrics and, uh, they sort of had a tendency to write songs. Oh, the, the actual lyrics they used were very, like, conceptual and sort of were, like, imploring the the idea that. Again, I'm not exactly sure how to articulate it, but like their lyrics just served as abstractions of different things that were almost like modeled through their song, and I have wondered if they had been INTPs before um, that I that I had related to. Uh, but I, too, am both reluctant to and struggling to come up with fictional or real-life examples of ones that I actually do relate to. I will say so, that I'm pretty sure a lot of the musicians that I listen to are probably INTPs, just by happenstance, but I wouldn't know for sure. Yeah. That's very cool too. Um, <laughs> so I was thinking, um, so Anthony, you know a lot about the Enneagram. So I was wondering what are the most common types for 
four INTPs. I, cause I, I know a lot of nine and five INTPs and I was wondering what your thoughts right. on it were. Right, there's a lot of, the, the most common one that I've seen with actual INTPs, you know, TINE has been usually some combo of nine with, and if you know about tri-type, with a five wing six second as their, as their second fixation or a fix, is, that's the, the terminology. But um, yeah, usually that has to be the case is nine with some, with the fixation in the head. Um, that, that's five wing six second. There are a lot of, uh, like most INTPs will tend to readily and easily identify with five and then four and then after that nine, even though usually that's that tends to be a mistype, but that's mostly just due to poor literature on the Enneagram that's actually out there available. So, so I would say nine by far the most common. Anthony, if I if I might ask, I'm curious because um, I I haven't met too many INTPs that that have gone deep into the Enneagram, and I'm curious what um, what about it has been helpful for you. And what do you think it is that a lot of INTPs are missing um, about the system? I wouldn't venture as far at all to say that it's been helpful to me unless it's, unless it's just helpful for understanding things that I was perhaps um, self-oblivious to previously, but it, it hasn't been practically helpful for me whatsoever. Um, I, but I, I would say that as far as what INTPs are missing from it, in terms of how they might be interested in it, it yeah. to me, Enneagram touches on sort of a, if you, if you were going to take every sort of typology system or every sort of like, yeah, like typology grouping system, grouping people based on their tendencies, like Enneagram is sort of at a, you know, cognitive functions and MBTI are sort of more apparent. It's more about cross, it's more about attentional styles to certain forms of information and processing, whereas Enneagram is more, I guess, uh, deeply psychoanalytical and related to like deep-seated issues that you have. Um, and it gets it gets really quite complex and is actually has far more like archaic origins and like philosophy and religion than uh, it's often then is often obviously apparent with it. So it's it's a uh, like like the system sort of never ends. Like there's you know and, and as far as what's missing from it, I think it's just the exposure to the literature that's out there and like uh, like like you have to like involve yourself in groups and look at um, like the original Enneagram writers just to get a start and just to get a sort of head start on it. So it's not necessarily like that's not everybody's. It's not everybody's first thought to, to do that, unless they find themselves like encapsulated just by not knowing their type or something. Cool. Thanks. So my question, like, is for Anthony, might, might be like, um, uh, so INTPs. I think when INTPs initially go into the Enneagram, they assume that there are five. Like they read it and mm -hmm. then they go like, I'm a five. So I, I'm wondering, like. How come that happens? Like, how come INTPs tend to mistype as fives when when they're like actually a nine or another type? Oftentimes, it's because the the descriptions of and this is this applies to most typology on the internet. Like the descriptions that are you know the most Googleable or accessible are often also extremely caricatural. So, um, 
you know, it, if, if I were to go read it, I wouldn't easily identify with the characterization of Nines as necessarily easygoing and, you know, like uh, having a strongly positive outlook or anything like that. I would definitely, uh, I would definitely identify much more with the, with the reticence and the, the intellectualization as a defense mechanism that they talk about with five. Um, but there's so much more nuance to that. Like, it's so not a caricatural system. It's, it's more like you have to find out which aspect of the human experience is most important to you and then how you, like, internally, heuristically handle that. Like, it's... Um, and, and then just the sort of typical descriptions don't touch on that. So I so like, I don't blame them for mistyping this five symbol. Like I did, Spacey did. Um, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, yeah. And it, it usually takes someone to come in and explain that, how, what the types actually are and how they represent why the mistypes actually happen, like specific to the context like what the person is misunderstanding for, you know, for them to be able to step out of the cave. That's very true. Yeah. I find that like some Enneagram types sound like um, MBTI descriptions because their character get like what, um, like they're kind of like the stereotypical Enneagram descriptions overlap with some MBTI descriptions. So what happens is like sometimes, you know, um, and like, I don't know, like INTJs will always think that they're fives or like INTPs will always think that they're fives or like, but then they'll figure out the real type when they actually like get into the, into the system. But like, it was a really good point, Anthony. Like I, I totally, sure. totally agree. Yeah. Right, and, and, and to, to really figure it out, it takes a while and you have to get in, so you have to get like into the system and into the communities as well. Like that's where the real information is, so. Um, it, it, I mean, it's definitely a time commitment if you're like if you're really that concerned with discovering that and knowing. Um, but I mean, yeah, like basically what you said. Yeah, yeah, completely, totally agree. <laughs> so my next question for you guys is like, what makes you feel energized? What makes you feel alive? Honestly, probably really pleasurable uh, sensory experiences. And that includes stuff like recreational drugs and food and music, stuff like that. I love debate. I like talking to somebody who can go tit for tat with me for hours and explore something deeply. I can do that forever. I totally relate to that. It's like the best you feel like alive when you're able to have a deep level discussion with someone um, about things that are that really matter. You know, that's the thing is like people are often have like superficial conversations so to have to find someone that you can have a deep conversation with. Um, it's special. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Good conversation is hard to beat. Um, I also kind of feel like there's a lot of things that I if I'm taking the perspective of looking back on things in my life and what have I enjoyed the most. A lot of things are kind of non-stereotypical INTP. Like, um, a lot of it is time spent with other people and um, like shared experiences. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's not, it's not always like <laughs> reading and <laughs> studying and Googling stuff, but sometimes it is. They say that the biggest, um, the biggest indicator of a quality of life is human interaction for like anyone. It's like quality human interaction and like what high quality interaction is, is like having a conversation that like matters to you or it was like stimulating in some way. And that's hard to come across, but it's like the biggest indicator that prevents like depression or anxiety or whatever neurosis is like being with people that you like. <laughs> and it might also like to bring it back to type, it could also be the inferior FE. It's like aspirational and it's like you want it and it's like to integrate fully, you have to integrate your inferior. So there's that psych hole for that. I was going to respond with something like uh, facetiously, like caricature, I was going to be like physics and then, or something like that. But uh, I would say, I don't know, like, like what you said, related to the interior. Yeah, it makes me feel alive, feeling loved. Um, and what else? Feeling like I've attained mastery and the capability to engage in the things that that actually bring me out into the world, I guess. Like that make me feel generally up to snuff and capable and like competent. So I, so I guess like uh, control and mental mastery, I suppose. Yeah, I would totally second that, that or as far as like inferior FE, that when you have something that gives you meaning or purpose in life, feeling like you have something like that is the best like i mean i, I love the, the you know like the, there's a degree to which like ti can be satisfied with like investigating things that are super interesting and talking to people who are also interested in those things but there is nothing like having purpose and meaning feeling like you were meant for this and uh, that and the and love honestly oh no that that's it right there just nailed it that's what intps need a place to belong no. Yeah. The recreational drugs can allow for the illusion of that for short periods can, of time. Yeah. yeah. But, um, Absolutely. This is so warm and heartfelt. Like, yeah, a place to belong, <laughs> a place to feel like you you offer something that you contribute something it goes to like to tony robbins human needs like the biggest human needs are to contribute and to grow and when you have when you're feeling loved you feel like you contribute to someone and you feel like you're growing with them and so uh that brings me to the next question how important is it for you to feel competent in something or just competent in general it's very very important to me actually like it I have to be able to at least avoid basic errors and not look like an idiot or else it, it hurts me real deep. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you could yeah. say that in the sense that like, if I'm going to write someone a text or, or email, I will spend an inordinate amount of time making sure that it is perfect, perfectly what I want to say. The grammar is right. There's no spelling mistakes. I want to look, competent. And I mean, it, it's not that I, I doubt that, but I know that it could be, it could appear otherwise. And therefore, I want to make sure that that's the case. With me, it's like, like, uh, I can give an example, I suppose, like in my jobs that I've had, like, I'm quite a clumsy person. Um, 
and it takes like like it usually takes me a few times to mess up at something before I like just intuitively understand it. I guess, um, you know, like like just with like little like basic tasks and duties, and um, for whatever reason, I tend to seem to struggle with that and like struggle with things like hand-eye coordination and jobs where it's necessary to like and and, and and it makes me feel like any competence that I had thought I that I had convinced myself that I had before was just like some sort of like self-illusion like it makes me feel horrible and then or, or like that I like the, the only like like I, I've just spent so much time mastering things that are impractical that it's almost like it's almost pathetic that like I can't do like basic tasks or something. Um, and also things like just like interactions with people. It, it's like basic world things, like basically like sort of what sort of like what Spacey said, not like like just not making basic error, errors to feel like an idiot because when I do that, it triggers the sphere that like for me there's no safety or belonging in the world like that I live in, if that makes sense. I think for me, it's kind of a paradox because um, on one hand, I feel like INTPs are particularly good at shooting from the hip. Like our NE gives us this ability to guess well, I guess. Um, and we can make it through difficult situations without a lot of planning. So on one hand, it would seem like appearing competent isn't super important, but on the other hand, like when it, when whatever it is, is something that's important to you, like it's like a, like who you are on the job or something like that. Um, I feel like TI by its nature, like it, it knows so much about how much it doesn't know that and it, in order for it to make good decisions, it needs to already have all of this knowledge together. So it can become like, I can become, uh, I feel like we're, we're prone to imposter synd syndrome to a certain extent as INTPs um, for that reason. So it's kind of, it's kind of both. Yeah. I remember Spacey mentioning to me, like self-doubt is a huge thing that, you know, INTPs deal with. It's something to do with like DI, I think, like, like JI, like TI and FI just have this pre-chance towards like self-doubt or self-second guessing or like the just the, like needing to go over logic, refining it more and to like, it, it causes an insecurity. It, I, like, so I can see that. Also, we have a new member here too. His, uh, he's um, a Twitter, one of my Twitter uh, friends, his name is uh, Warmest Robot and he's too shy to show his face. <laughs> hey, hey. No, I mean, I hey. feel my hey. identity one day, maybe like tomorrow, maybe 20 years from now, I'll get there. But uh, yeah, no, I, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This is pretty awesome. I, I know I showed up like, what, like a half hour late, but. It's okay, in true perceiver fashion. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's okay if work was already my excuse, so. Yes. For sure. It's nice to have you here. We're talking about how important it is for INTPs to feel competent. So what is your relationship with feeling competent? When I hear that, I think of uh, the Enneagram 5. And I don't know if you guys are familiar. It's just like 
type 5 is that type that's the investigator and I feel like INTPs as well as INTJs, both of which are often type 5s, um, kind of develop in a way that they don't want to be wrong or they don't want to be vulnerable and might like feel the most vulnerable if they themselves think that they are incompetent. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I don't... <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah, I, I don't know. It's kind of... Uh, yeah, that's like the fear, basically. It's incompetence. I, I read something that said, uh, INTJs developed to not be vulnerable, which would make sense from a lot of just INTJs and the kinds of things I knew that they went through in terms of just their childhood and everything like that. And then INTPs developed to not be wrong. And personally, I think that was like my entire childhood up through adolescence. I, I had like a philosophy kind of worked out. And then maybe I was 15 and I realized like, oh, oh I've been completely wrong this entire time. And I think that has a lot to do with the development of both of those types. It's kind of uh, getting through that storm to then be whatever intuitive, introverted, intuitive thinking kind of tendencies follow. I think that does happen. You get so attached to your own, like, internalized, systematized logic that if it's if it doesn't actually hold up, like eventually, you know, the cards, like the house of cards, will crumble, and it's sort of bittersweet. And you realize you have to like reconstruct and like rebuild that. It's not like a conscious thing. I think it's just like uh, mechanistic, like with the way that the ITV just moves about, moves through about things. Right. One yeah. of the things that we were talking about a lot in a couple different ways from imposter syndrome to how we're perceived by other people. It's extroverted feeling inferior. It is this fear of having a reputation of not being competent. I mean, part of it's internal. I don't know how internal it is so much as my impression of how the world is perceiving me. That it's incredibly important that I appear competent. That might be more important than me being competent. Well, I think that that ties into the whole introverted sensing combined with blocked with extroverted feeling, which basically amounts to giving people the right impressions. Uh, right. That, that that's that's also if, if you guys are curious or wondering, that sounds distinctly related to Enneagram type three specifically. Which is also a competency type and primarily feels the need to appear competent to people for the for, for the sake of maintaining an image of being valuable or indispensable also anthony said something earlier about his, his process of developing competency i guess where he's talking about that thing i strongly relate to where you basically have to mess something up it's like i have to make every error before i yeah. start not making any errors um but it, it really made me think that I don't think I really directly pay attention to anything that I'm doing. And I don't know if you guys can relate to that, but that's part of the reason I mess everything up first is because I'm really not directly focused on anything. I just, it's all muscle memory and 
layered yeah, impressions of the past on top of each other. That it, are really it, it's, it, it's sort of like driving somewhere and forgetting how you got there because yeah, it's because it's of the routine. Just like yeah. that. Any, any grammatically, if you want to differentiate between whether you're a nine or a five, then you relate to both. If you relate to that, you're probably <laughs> not a five. You're probably a nine. Yeah. Right on. I guess uh, one question I would ask in like this literally just surreal, pretty awesome freaking chat we got going on. Like first time I've ever kind of been a part of I mean, I, I have INTP friends or whatever, more INTJs, but um, it's basically, is there any philosophy or perspective or just way of thinking or like those, those initial principles that are still a part of who you are today and very well may have been formed like as a child, like early, early on? Um, I don't know, like, my INTJ dad, he, uh, like, I grew up really religious, and, I mean, grace and mercy were, like, two really big things with him, and, um, I don't know, with all the dogma and all that, just the Bible and kind of finding my own way, it's like, there's some things that I, I would never want to shape in terms of, like, who I am, you know? I think it's interesting. I, I've I've seen that um, the well the type community in general, but also INTPs in the type community. That's a very common motif of having a religion of some kind, and then either leaving that or finding something else. Um, I think that that's that's really typical, and I think that it can even be why we might find ourselves interested in type like if you've if you grew up in religion and there's a lot of things about it like that, that encourage you to develop yourself and um y you know you you see yourself as um part of a greater body of people and i think that that myers briggs uh, or or any of the other typology systems um provide a way to kind of tap into that uh desire with without having to be in a religious institution that's right really true also um there's a really weird background noise so um i would maybe ask everyone to mute their um th their thingy revolver uh, just in case yeah thank you guys uh unless you're talking so <laughs> thank you for the cooperation yes my, my t te quota has been met today now i'm pooped <laughs> Well, okay. I have a couple things to say about this, I guess. Um, one is that I, like I imagine most INTPs do, they trended towards existentialism in general, probably by the time I was like 10 or so. Um, you know, that I was mostly a nihilist for my life, probably. And now I'm guess I'm more of an absurdist, I would call it. So that's where I'm at there. And I kind of have that reverse experience of, like I was raised Catholic for a little while, but I was a natural atheist, obviously, because I question everything and blah, blah, blah. But I had this ESTJ dad who was always like, religious people are stupid. 
Christians are morons. I don't need a God. I can be a good person without religion. So I'm like, fuck you, dad. I'm going to be spiritual, you know? Um, so, you know, I'm actually, ironically, I guess, more Christian now than I ever was. That's awesome. Yeah, with, with me, it was like, I'm going to be like a Christian existentialist dad. I don't have to, like try to be Christ-like your way. So I, I would definitely kind of resonate with that, TJ. That's that's awesome. My friend Dan calls INTPs the quiet rebels. And I felt like, Spacey, you, you really embodied the quiet rebel when you embraced spirituality because your dad didn't. <laughs> I feel like like um nihilism it tends to be associated with like TI doms. Is that true? Do you find yourself to have had a nihilistic phase like to all of you guys? Yeah, for me, I, I definitely had that, I think, because I, I I am one of the INTPs that was religious and then stopped being. Um, so I think there was a bit of a vacuum left after uh, that experience. And also, I think with TI, if you... TI is not a great tool for creating meaning or um, understanding meaning in a lot of cases, because I think meaningfulness does, it is rooted in emotion or in relationships. So if you, if you lean too hard on your TI, um, it, you can come up uh, wanting in, in that, that realm. And I think it's really easy to, if you're looking at the world from a very logical view, it's like, well, you know, whatever I do, I die and am forgotten and all of the people I care about die and will be forgotten. And then the eventual heat death of the universe. And it's very easy to just like not, not see a, a reason to like a TI reason to get up in the morning and to care. Um, so I think that that is common and I think that the, the way out of that is to stop looking with only your intellect and to look at other avenues for meaning in life. Yeah, it, it, it seems that right when you rely too heavily on your TI, especially when you're not you know, when you're also like, I don't know if uh, like grand stackings are talk about here. When I, when I say that, I mean like the unvalued functions too. So like SE polar, things like that. I think that when you aren't so, and you know, like um, instinctively engaged to be uh, like, like, like interactive in a way that makes impact when you become overly cerebral, you can compensate for that through TI, NESI by um, sort of developing this tendency to over-intellectualize or rationalize th things in your surroundings down to their, down to like th the granular, you know, aspects of reality that sort of miss the point, which is to, to live life um, and to try to find meaning in it somewhere. And it seems like INTPs, at least more than any other, at least more than most other types that I've seen or witnessed, have a tendency to sort of internalize that process that Tim described. Like, well, I'm just going to die and I'm going to be forgotten in the eventual death of the universe, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's like, 
and that the, the, that's not necessarily like a comfortably nihilistic thought either. I think like, it's not, um, well, the world is meaningless, so I can do anything. Well, it's like, no, the world is meaningless and I still have to deal with it. Like, and it's problems as they present themselves to me as a being in it. So, um, uh, like it, it does seem like INTPs have a tendency, a tendency to sort of internalize that fear or that, that way of thought, especially when they're younger. I was going to say, I feel like no matter what a person's belief system is, if they're an INTP, it's usually based on their TI frameworks. You know, it's like the, the, the sort of coding and everything has sort of like a deductive build to it. So at some point, most of us go through some sort of paradigm shift and it goes all the way back to a certain point in the code where we realized that we were wrong about a particular thing. Everything after that is destroyed. It's kind of like Antonia Dodge talk. I think she calls TI Shiva the destroyer, you know, just like it's all gone and now I need to rebuild the framework, which it doesn't destroy everything. It destroys it all the way back to that point that was not right. And if you have enough paradigm shifts, in your life, you start to question the use of logic for finding all the answers. Because mm-hmm. how does this keep happening? That I believe this was, you'll still use logic, but I mean, you, you as kind of like, I think Anthony was mentioning, you know, you start to incorporate that other factor of like meaning and, and try to find meaning through other ways than just logic, like using it in tandem with other cognitive functions and um, things like that. Dude, I was literally just gonna say that's that's what TI is. It it destroys, it mm-hmm. deconstructs, it critiques, it finds the faults in things. It doesn't it doesn't create anything. It's a destroyer, and you know it's a powerful tool, but TI itself is utterly devoid of meaning. There's no there's no meaning here. It's it's binary, true, false. There to have meaning would be would ruin the entire process. It wouldn't work. And I think that's probably where the divide between TI and FI really lies. I wouldn't say that's necessarily the case, mainly because TI doesn't exist independently. Like you can't really define, I don't think that. I'm I'm describing it in a vacuum, I guess, but it doesn't exist in a vacuum. You're right. But I I do agree that it's it's like the least practically useful function, especially in terms of finding, you know, or it, it, it can, in a, in a negative state, it can internalize the fact that maybe there's no meaning for them. I think it's that's still often subjective to the INTP too. Again, like not in a vacuum, just like in terms of the way that I've experienced them and experienced myself. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is you're never going to find meaning using a disinterested calculus, essentially. Right. So if I, real quick, I basically is, I remember tweeting something, it was like, it's funny when um, there's INTPs when this type that's coined the, the logician suddenly forgets that like this logic, quote, air quote, is purely subjective. We lead with this, I, I think of the thinking functions as like just purely egoic. I've, I've told people that when frustrated with just leading with TI, kind of letting ego 
sabotage everything. It's just like I'm leading with ego all the time rather than someone who might lead with an intuitive function. I maybe correlate that to soul. I don't know, but um, I, I truly see in terms of objective logic, that's kind of where the NTJs have me personally be and uh, like just a favorite quote of Socrates is all I know is that I know nothing and anyone I truly care about and want to kind of bring true real intent to them it's like I, I find myself bringing up that quote a lot to kind of just get to a transparency uh, like a lot quicker than other people might be used to and I, I think I think INTPs, um, when they can kind of accept that subjective and that power and realize it's like, oh, this is literally just my own framework, go from that and realize like, I'm, I'm not wrong. I, I think that's why FI is all the way at the bottom because it's like, who, who the fuck am I to tell you what you should value, right? That's, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, so I'm like into way more woo-woo stuff than I used to be. And uh, you, I don't know if you've heard of the Gene Keys, but they they talk about how logic is meant to help us understand things, like to break things down. But it's not really a good basis for making judgment calls. And to me, that makes a lot of sense because logic helps me construct a narrative for how I come to my conclusions. The problem is, is that you sort of like, when once you create that narrative, you create this sort of like rut in your mind and it feels right like that. And you begin to believe that this narrative has to be right. And so then you start making judgment calls off of it. So it's, it's more like using TI for what its purpose is, which is to help us sort of break things down and understand it, but not believing that it's the end all be all to the answers that we're looking for. I mean, that's just the way I take it. Well, if we're looking at logic in a vacuum, sure, it shouldn't be the only decision point. But if logic isn't the thing making a decision, then it's emotion. And that shouldn't be a decision point. Logic should be the final decider, and emotion is a data point within a logical decision being made. That's where I, I would personally just disagree, just because um, it's kind of like Jonathan Haidt in his. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, he talks about the, the, what is it, the social intuitionist model and all these studies that they do where they show that people, and I know I, it's so easy to be like, well, it's the other people that aren't being logical. But he's, in the studies, they show that most people, they get an intuition first when they experiencing or making a decision. And then they come to a judgment and then they do post hoc reasoning. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to believe that we're not the ones that do that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, my personal experience in life has been that it's better to modify one's intuitions than try to always have the best logic because everybody, I don't care if they're white supremacists or flat earthers, they all, they all have their reasons. Reasons are not good enough, you know, because they all think they're very logical. And so it's a trap. It's a trap that I feel any of us could possibly fall into. It's easy to think that they're just not intelligent. It's a trap that I feel we can all fall into. Dude, I think you nailed it again because see, TI, <laughs> TI is not really that logical, but what it's really good at is post hoc reasoning. <laughs> we're we're incredibly good at rationalizing what we do. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it, it's 
it, it's used conditionally. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, INTPs are renowned for really good at drawing out the inconsistencies, but then not necessarily kind of having that TE to be like, well, like, this is how you do it. It's like, no, like, I knew what was wrong, like, or just, I knew how to be reductionistic, but somebody else might need to kind of implement the, the other part that kind of fills that gap wherever um, the in inconsistency was. So with MBTI and typed and philosophy and all just existentialism, it, that's, to me, that's sort of, it's all about finding the inconsistencies within myself and like my best friends are the people that can like chew my ass out and tell me how it really is sometimes and just be real with me. It's very, very, very interesting. Love in the chat. And also, um, so the TI vocal pattern, if you, if you guys, um, so, so I noticed that some TI users, and this is just a thing the community knows too, is that like, there's a, they have a low steady flat tone. So like it, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't want to cross with all people, but like a way to visually type, but don't, this doesn't always work, but like TI users, some of them tend to have like a low, steady, consistent, even tone to their voice. And on another thing, so we talked about how TI is post hoc logic. And so the thing is, what happens is I'm thinking, cause Spacey and Anthony were talking about making mistakes at work. And that would make a lot of sense in, in the frame of, if everything is like post hoc logic, then you'd have to make the mistake first to, to then be able to rationalize it after. But like to, and then it, it made me wonder if like TTE, like extroverted thinking is anticipatory, anticipatory logic. So the reason why TE, it, it already knows how to do it before even making mistakes. So like TE is able to anticipate like one, de one destination to another destination and that clear line there. So I wonder if TE has more of a, anticipatory element to it, whereas like TI might be more post-hoc. Yeah, I think TE has a more inherent understanding of like causal relationships between things. Mm -hmm. I, I think part of the reason is because TE is always blocked with an introverted perception function. That as well, yeah. Yeah, so it's like dealing with something epistemological or something like, uh, you know, literally like said to be predicted or had already been experienced before or something like that. So, and then it, it structures it around that way. So it's already uh, logical in terms of its externalized actions. Yeah, and on the converse, like TI is blocked with an extroverted perceiving function. So what happens is like extroverted perceiving tends to take things with a fresh pair of eyes, thus not really like looking at the, con like the anticipatory or cause and effect logic, because that's more of an SI and NI. Like people, when when a judging function like a TE or FE is, is with an NI or SI, it causes a type of predicting outcomes and ramifications easily or like in their area of domain. Whereas like when when TI or FI, like a, like a JI function is blocked with a, like a PE, so NE or SE, it causes, um, so I call, I call SE like viewing the physical with fresh eyes and I call NE viewing the metaphysical with fresh eyes. And what happens is when you have that, the logic comes post hoc because when you see things with fresh eyes, like you by definition cannot be um, rationalizing while it's happening. You have to like have had it and then like you, 
you then rationalize it with the TI. So you experience it with like the any or something, and then you after the fact with the TI, if that makes sense. Or uh, I, I would imagine that's also a good like little tool uh, to use as an aid to type yourself. Like if you don't understand, if you don't know your MBTI type, like think about whether you will think about which one between the, those two things that you just described, like you experience. Yeah, for, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Anthony, I'm also really curious. So what's the difference between um, a type five INTP and a type nine INTP? Like what are like the fine distinctions between these? How can you tell? Right. Um, I'm sort of immediately reluctant to put it in the context of INTPs in general, but I would say that if, if you're a type nine, primarily what's going to be driving you is a need to ultimately have a positive outlook on things, even if you currently don't. Like it, it's a need to rationalize things. You know, maybe it does apply to INTPs in this way. It, it's a need to it can manifest as a need to rationalize things so that things can become more comfortable to deal with. And it's a way to subconsciously dampen things down, which can include, you know, um, being being extremely intellectual. Like you might find comfort in that. Um, but with type type five does is literally across the opposite. It's like almost directly across the opposite from nine. It's diametrically opposed. It intensifies things by contrast. So they are probably going to be much more prone to struggle with nihilism. They're probably going to be more prone to end up using using their ideas as weaponry to stave off that nihilism. And they're probably going to be not as, not as slothful as the nines, but definitely more withholding as if they don't want to give up themselves to the world for a fear that they don't that they haven't quite grasped it or understand it yet and the, and the thing is is that with the system like enneagram both of those energies if you want to call them that both of those motivations can exist within the indp or just within anybody in general but it's um and but the work comes in deciphering which one is leading and i guess you just have to figure out like what, you know, like where does your attention go? And like what tends to be your, you know, your Achilles, your Achilles heel, I suppose. Uh, if, is it like sloth and not doing anything because you're intimidated by how uncomfortable that thing might be to do, which might be more nine? Or is it um, a fear of divulging something? that you don't that that you don't want to that is so cool <laughs> yeah. i feel very energized having to having learned about the enneagram in in that amount of depth so thank you Anthony. I, and, and, yeah i know it's quite vague um what i had just described because that can manifest in so many different frames like it has to be vague. like it's such a um the enneagram is often applied and people often have to type themselves so conditionally. So it's like you have to understand and have sort of internalized, like even if it's not your type, the mechanisms of the different points to be able to differentiate them. Um, like it, it, it can be hard work. 
Yeah, it, it's a lot of hard work. It took me forever to figure out my actual Enneagram type. <laughs> what um, type are you? I, I think I'm a six, possibly six. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so guys, um, I'm curious. Uh, what is the moment that you were sure you were an INTP? Like what about the type resonates a lot to you? Like what, what gave you that giant aha that was like, this is undeniably me? Or like, what are the moments in your life that you've had that are like that? that just reinforced to you that type is real or like that you can see yourself in the type? I would say I first type is an ISTP and reading that TI, the first thing, one of the first things I read was you make jokes to make feel, other people feel uncomfortable was um, the first time that pattern had ever been given to me and it explained a lot. And as I read about TI, it, the, just resonated with me so deeply that was you know like how we all feel when we first read about it or hear about it that we feel seen that we hadn't felt before um and then when i learned i was an intp i resonated a lot with the loops with the tisi loop about being really closed off to other people's opinions and having trouble being motivated and um feeling really stuck. So all those parts together made me feel really solid that I was an INTP. Other stuff too. Yeah, I would say that from the very first test that I ever took, I mean, I was skeptical about any personality system and then took the, took the MBTI and came out as an INTP. And when I was reading the profile, it just, totally resonated. And since that point, you know, like I've, I've um, read through AJ Drent's books on INTP and I think, wow, I wish my parents had had this, had these books, you know, like this, this, this just encapsulates who I am. And uh, I mean, I've taken the test several times since then and it's always INTP, but it's always confirmed. And it, and, and I totally agree with David. It's, it's that you feel seen, that feeling like, wow, this, how does they, they, they put it perfectly? So, yeah, I, I love AJ Drenth. I, I bought everything that he has sold. Um, he calls actually like NPs, um, the destroyer. So he has like a, a course on them. He calls them like, like the seeker, the explorer, the trickster, and the destroyer. So NPs play a certain role. And, um, yeah, the TI and the critiquing, totally, like, true. Um, and, yeah, that's that's really, really cool, Joel. Yeah, we're agents of chaos. Deal with it. But, uh, I, I will tell you guys, my name is literally Joel. <laughs> okay. My name is Joel, too, dude. Jehovah is the Lord. That's what my dad named me. Oh, my God. I used to get Jehovah's Witness, too. I'm 24. <laughs> I would guess that like none of you are older than 24 and I don't know, like, I, I know that this whole like kind of display I put together in like a few minutes is like totally absurd, but I do want to thank you guys for having me. Cause this is pretty awesome. Pretty, pretty, uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. We come from the same paradigm <laughs> and we blew it up. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I don't know. I've been an INTP since the beginning, you know, since I first stumbled into this stuff. And I've tested as an INTJ once or twice. I tested as an ISTP once, but like 
my own research confirmed INCP, other people's opinions continue to confirm it. So I've never questioned it. Um, I remember when I first discovered that's what I was, I'd recently been diagnosed with some kind of like developmental disorder or something like that, basically Asperger's. And I remember having like the list of INTP traits and the list of Asperger's traits like side by side and like realizing they look pretty damn similar. So that was kind of my moment, I guess. I just wanted to comment a bit on that. So I, I was reading typology books so recently and they talked about how um, like um, TI users tend to, I, I don't know why I said this, but like TI users tend to have like that like Asperger's or like not not all oh my gosh <laughs> but like um I was reading and they were talking about they when they're younger they 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 think that they might have a learning disability or something because the way that TI learns is that it it takes it needs to like like Spacey said it needs to make every mistake before it actually knows like the right the white way and that that um that some TI users can feel like they are a bit slower when they're younger but when they grow up, they don't have that. But um, I don't know, I read that in Building Blocks of Personality Types, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Like maybe we, we go slower so that we don't have to go back and do it again. I had first, uh, well, I, I had first typed as an INTP and then um, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I had been, I, I had like decided that. And then with, you know, the improvement of the opinions of other people that I was like an ENTP and then I sort of had fallen into this loop where I couldn't, where, where I had thought I was an ENTP and because of my own, like, uh, my own diffident, my, my own diffidence and apprehensiveness to my reasoning as to why I was an ENTP was an indication of like a failure to make that reasoning like epistemologically solid. So I had mistaken like my own inability to type myself for inferior SI rather than just like intellectual rigor. Cause I had noticed other INTPs who had been so certain that they were. And I thought that, you know, perhaps that if I was like an INTP, actually an INTP, then that would have manifested similarly for me. But then I realized just through my own research that that's not necessarily how it works whatsoever. <laughs> No, I've seen like ENTPs, for example, will actually be more certain than INTPs are, um, but it will change from moment to moment. They'll be certain about different things. <laughs> You're right. Um, we just won't make up our minds in the first place. Yeah. I think I, I can definitely uh, have some particularly like exuberant, maybe more ENTP-like days but those are days like I know the choices I've made throughout the day that kind of maybe like reasoning behind like any behavior or things said. And uh, I'm right, I promise. No, no but um, so with INTP, it's a few years back, um, just everything you read and then the self-autonomy is basically that's, uh, that's kind of when I read that it was, it was just goes self, most self autonomous. And I think, I, I don't know, I, I definitely uh, like to think I'm autonomous. Yeah. So for me, I uh, took an online test is like, it's my first exposure to MBTI and 
I scored INTP and in reading the description, it seemed very true. Actually, it, it hit home in a way, but maybe a little bit different from what other people felt. I was very disappointed actually, <laughs> because it, there were there were a lot of things in the INTP description that were things that I don't necessarily want to be. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, tendency to be completely oblivious to the energy in the room and to, you know, be the wet blanket sometimes, to be the devil's advocate when that's not appreciated. All of the like inferior FE problems uh, in reading that, I'm like, man, that that hits way too close to home. So for me, um, that was kind of a moment where I thought, okay, I need to learn more about this because I don't want to be an INTP. I want to transcend being an INTP. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I, it was like sort of an analogous thing that happened to me when I sort of figured it out. It, it was like when I, when I had to become accosted by my own issues related to my related to my state of being, you know, T-I-N-E was when I was, I just sort of had to resignedly accept it. Yeah, you should feel roasted by your type description, not, not like vindicated or, you know, whatever. You can feel vindicated by it. If you just make it, you justify that to yourself. You can just pick out the good things. You, know, you don't want to be like, oh my God, this makes me feel so special and good about myself. No, that's not your type. Yeah, it depends, though. I mean, what if you, I say often that I was raised to be an ISFJ, that people told me those are the things I should prioritize. And so obviously, that's exactly what I'm not like, it's the actual worst thing they could tell me. Mm. And if I'm really consciously trying to be really empathetic and understand how people are feeling and arrange what I do around that, and be really appreciative of um, the past and all these Try to not, not ever rock the boat, which is exactly what I'm not, I'm not supposed to be. So in that way, um, I did feel vindicated. I did feel like um, I've been doing it wrong this whole time and that, that made me feel good. Exactly what Tim said though, those things are all awful and they're all true and they're all totally unconscious and I hate them and they're terrible every day. But um, uh, no, I mean, there's certainly some parts of it that are that changed who I am and allowed me to find my proper vibration. Right. Well, I know what you mean about that though, because some sometimes it can be a situation where like other people are telling you that you're doing things the wrong way, but that's actually just the way that you were supposed to do things, but it's just not a very common way of doing things. Exactly. That's true. You guys are hitting the nail on the head. So my question, Joel, you said that you really resonated with the TI description before. So I was wondering what specific part of the TI description like hit home? Let's see. Well, I mean, just the way that it did. There, there's a couple of things I think related to it. The way that, that it describes frameworks and the way that when I think about my um, the way I analyze things, that seems to make sense. There's a sort of like, um, I don't know if you'd call it like a deductive sort of flow to it. But that makes sense. And plus, I mean, when people like like in the the personality hacker um, uh, profiler training thing, they you know they try to isolate the cognitive functions, and we go through the exercises and 
and when they talk about the way, I mean, I hate the the term like, radical honesty because it's way overused and people go, but the feeling that that there are things that I believe to be true, but I'm afraid maybe to share because it will create disharmony, but I want to so badly. Like I want to talk about those things um, and I don't feel that there should be anything that it shouldn't be something I can't talk about. Like it's, it's frustrating to live in a world where uh, where people take things so personally. And so all of that about TI really resonated with me. I thought that's, that's, that's definitely how I am. Yeah. That's really well put, Joel. Um, in the INTJ panel, they called FI radical authenticity. And it's very fitting that like TI is radical honesty. So it's like paralleled and it, you know, it sits really nice. And so I was wondering like what specific part of the INTP description that you read was so you that it would give you chills? Like, you know, Tim talked about inferior FE, Joel talked about the dominant TI. And I was wondering like what part struck so true that it gave you chills down your spine. There's one part from an INTP description I read that was quite good, but I don't know if most people actually saw that one. Um, and it mentioned this part where uh, it says the TINE axis um, creates a curious overriding desire to observe from a detached position. And that really resonated with me when I read that. Um, and further down, when it was talking about the lower functions like SI and FE and stuff, it mentioned something about how we often enjoy dissonance in our music. And that also really resonated with me. I like really noisy, harsh music sometimes. To answer your question, and this is similar to what Joel said, I, I get angry when people say untrue things around me. It's one of the very few things that makes me angry. And um, I'm driven to have to speak what I think is true, even if it upsets the social balance, especially if it upsets the social balance. The idea that somebody would keep the social balance by saying untrue things is absurd. Are there any examples of something that would be untrue? All right, like so, veganism is healthy, for example. That could be a good one. <laughs> I'm, I don't want to get too um, political or like be really weird. See, um, that's even political is ridiculous. <laughs> By the way, Stacey, that was such a TI, TI statement. Yeah. So um, yeah, so basically the TI test is like, at Personality Hacker is like, um, can you come up with an offensive truth? And, and basically Spacey just did it like naturally, like just like it took zero energy to, to say something that would offend like all the vegans in the audience. You're welcome. Spacey, you have to ever truly offended though? Like, I don't there's some impartiality between the ITPs in particular. What do you mean? Basically, so T, it's that TI, it's kind of just that um, like tunnel vision as far as almost just that all the way repressed introverted feeling to which as I've gotten older, I've realized, oh, that's 
it wouldn't be a bad idea to maybe try to start developing that. And like, it's gotten really weird ever since I've kind of made that in, like brought intent that much intent to feeling my own feelings rather than thinking my own thoughts as I had as a child and just kind of on autopilot it's always those thoughts and then but I don't know like I think there's enough of that impartiality there for us to be able to philosophize and kind of reach a transparency to where like if even if it is political if you kind of seize your own feeling on something enough granted we all kind of understand and accept each other for who we are rather than like looking to kind of point the finger at someone who might say something wrong or that I don't know but all right I'm also tired of hearing my own voice so I'm sorry <laughs> this I feel like I'm like the could I could I be holding the uh, torch for inferior FE but, sure. I don't know. What are you guys' thoughts on impartiality, I guess? That's a good descriptive word for us. Impartial. I don't know. I, I guess when people say stuff that's false, it doesn't... It only bothers me if I think that it's a... It's like a dangerous idea that if... Mm -hmm. If this falsehood is repeated to a whole bunch of people, then, then things are going to go south. Or people's lives are going to become worse. You know? If it's something like you believe in a God that I don't believe in, you know, whatever, if that makes you happy and it's not hurting anybody, that's cool. I'm not going to correct you or fuck. If you want to eat a plant-based diet, I'm not going to correct you either. Honestly, go for it. Do you, it's like, as long as it's not dangerous, I don't care. I, I agree. I would say that that's, that's where, I mean, since TI doesn't occur in a vacuum, I feel like there's a degree to which um, it probably touches on when, when something touches in, and an ethic or when somebody says something that like, like, like Spacey saying it could be dangerous, um, that, that then causes, you know, this, uh, the feeling of like, I mean, I, I would feel upset when someone's just spewing. It's like, I mean, to give an example, my roommate, uh, his job the other day, his boss comes in and starts talking about, he's got an article about, how let's just say if a certain race were to leave America, the, the, the number of diseases and the number of crime, things like that would go down. Something like that is so incredibly offensive, just so like not even close to anything, anything um, even okay to say, you know, it's like that kind of thing does get me because it's just amazing that there are people out there <laughs> that, you know, uh, can do that. So anyway, I'm just saying that it, it, it like, uh, like Spacey said, there's lots of ideas that are, you know, neither here nor there. They might be true. They might not be true. But they, I may not personally believe they'd be true. But if it's not hurting anybody, you know, who cares? But there are certain things that are definitely um, potentially dangerous ideas. And when they are clearly not true, it, it, it definitely bothers me. Well, and it's our job to point that shit out as INTPs, really. It is our job. So talking about impartiality, it's our job to see all the narratives, take them deconstruct them and understand them where they come from and see which ones like Joel are talking about are toxic and because people believe their own bullshit and so somebody has to be a referee and say that's bullshit that's bullshit that's bullshit 
most of them are actually bullshit, but some of them aren't, or less bullshit. Yeah, that's really interesting, Dave. Uh, it reminds me of like when Tim said that like he, he sees things in terms of degrees of belief. So it's like, this could be bullshit. This, this is definitely bullshit, or this is uh, maybe true. Or like there's degrees of, of, of BS, like degrees of belief mm -hmm. that TI has. You know, we're blessed and cursed with this mind that doesn't really get emotionally attached to a certain narrative. And that's why we're able to do that, or at least as much as that's possible for a human being. That's kind of where I've been at. That's kind of where I've been at during the whole impartiality discussion. It's like, right. You know, yeah, yeah we're, we're still emotional, you know, sex and fear driven animals, but you know, we're trying to ignore that part. So my question for you, INTPs, is what are your thoughts on being self-autonomous? Speaking for myself, I really like being autonomous. Autonomous. I don't like having to rely on anybody. I like to be able to detach and do my own thing whenever I want, but I've found myself woefully dependent on other people for a variety of things. And I don't really know if that's ever really going to change. I think that's kind of inherent and inferior FE. Where we, we rely on people more than we'd like to believe most of the time, I would say. I might say it's an aspiration and we get asymptotically closer to meeting no one, or at least we try to, and never actually get there. Um, yes, it's crazy, super important. The idea that, um, so I own my own company and I've done that for several years, but um, the idea that I'd exist in a hierarchy where somebody would tell me whether or not I'm valuable makes me insane. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, I think personally, as like, for instance, working as a nurse, um, when I, if you start doing something new, wherever you go, you have to be oriented typically. And people will always teach me their way of doing things. And, and when I'm with them, I try to the degree possible to do it their way. But it's always my goal to eventually establish my way. Like what I find to be work works best for me. So there's a degree to which autonomy is extremely attractive. It's something that I want to do. And, and I'm probably going to do anyway. I'm going to find my own way. Um, but at the same time, I totally agree. To, to one degree or another, we all depend on other people, but um, but I'm going to find a way within that to be my own independent self. I think that there's, there's a, uh, I think for INTPs in particular, there is a draw to uh, pretty radical independence. And a lot of that comes from TI being just a introverted judging function and it kind of going off on its own and deciding for itself certain things. But there's also a way that that desire for independence is a real liability if it's taken too far, because um, actually like the things that do matter in life, like Joyce was saying earlier, are our connections with other people. So um, that temptation to not depend on anyone can lead to isolating yourself. And that is uh, really the wrong way to go, in my view. You know, I guess in a slight contrast to kind of what Dave said, though, I think there's a little bit of something going on, probably for a lot of INTPs, where it's more like we may not see the value in ourselves. And we sometimes rely on other people to, to kind of come up to us and be like, hey, I see that you have value. You know, would you please use your skills or your knowledge or whatever to, to assist me or something like that. I think that makes us feel pretty good. Um, 
So in that sense, I think that's part of kind of how, and we, we rely on people to kind of give us a little bit of a purpose, a little bit of a place, maybe create a good emotional atmosphere for us, that, that sort of thing. I do agree with that. I think the opposite of autonomous is being controlled. And so it's about in the context of being needed, how much are we controlled? Right. And I think exactly. it's control is what we really hate. Right. That's that's really it. We don't like to be guilted or like strong armed, right, or controlled or forced into things. Yeah, that's just happened to me today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If uh, I can be really honest with you uh, all for, for a minute. Um, so basically why I kind of started this Twitter account a couple years back was, so, I mean, I have a, a personal Twitter and everything, and I, I had always tweeted from that platform. And then one day, and like I was with this girl who's typed INFJ, who's like a really big part of my life for a long time, and kind of always kind of had her to kind of like guide me along as like, you know, what do you think if I make this anonymous account for the sake of my own writing and being able to write in a way that I don't want to put a name and a face on. And two years later, it's like become a really um, weird wormhole in which like can feel genuinely like inauthentic. And, um, but like, I, I know how much more reach of the 1100 people versus the only 400, whatever. And like the, all the hometown people of some Midwest town that like, if I was tweeting the kind of content that I do on the platform that I do on just my normal, just me, the people that follow me, those 500, whatever, it's not that community. It's it, they, they would read that and be like, Oh, this, this guy's a weirdo. Whereas, that Twitter community, it's like kind of all weirdos. So, and we, we all kind of, so it, it really is just for the sake of my writing. But um, I mean, you guys will be the first to know if and when some identi identity reveal um, ever happens. Cause like it's times like these where I'm like, yeah, you know, it's like, <laughs> gee, like, <laughs> but um, so it's like, I don't know. I feel like if Joyce, it, say if we took a philosophy class together or something and I was joining the same group, like it it would just be me and my face and everything. And whereas like since it was go figure, it's like through this platform that I'm kind of making all these connections with people in ways that I've never had before. So and that's not something I like just I mean, my family knows that and it's like, oh yeah, Joel's got the weird anonymous Twitter account that he always talks about. But aside from that, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I just want to let you guys know it's, it's, it was, it started kind of really more with writing rather than like hiding, even though I do think there's, yeah, no, I'll, I'll leave it at that pretty much. I see. So like to escape control, it's like to make your own type of platform to where you can be autonomous. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, like something in TI descriptions too is like the hating micromanage 
like hating being micromanaged and it has to do with like not liking control too i think it also has to do with like being a perceiver too perceivers just in general are more like more resistant to control than judges and just like broad sweep not true but like if you link it to functions like like any and se are what perceivers have like ti and fi so those four functions are in the top two functions of all perceivers and that like ni si fe te are the top two functions of all judges and what this causes is that perceivers tend to have a pre-chance towards being a little more autonomous and judges just are have a pre-chance of accidentally maybe being a little more controlling. Well, okay, so Joel said something earlier about how you always, we have to figure out our own way to do things. And it's really annoying when someone keeps coming up to you and being like, hey, just do it like this, just do it like this, just do it. No, we gotta, we have to figure out at least a process first before we can even begin to listen to you. Sorry, it's just this hang up in, in our brains, but like, I've had right, so many. When that happens in. What's up? Uh, well, when that happens enough times, you start to you get the sense that it's just not worth even attempting right. to explain, you know, the logic yeah. to other people. And then I think that's where you can then start to end up in anonymous Twitter communities <laughs> where, you know, I, I really think that's what happens. <laughs> yes, I think I you're think, right. Um, I think that one one aspect that it leads to that is how TI actually tends to like pre-compute or like do all most of its thinking before the event where you actually need to use that thinking. So um, I find that I'm very resistant to things like following a checklist where all of the steps are um, already written out and you don't even need to understand how it works if you just follow the steps. But I, I'm very uncomfortable with that. Instead, I feel like I need to understand how everything works together and then I don't need a checklist. Then I know exactly what I can do in any situation to get the outcome that I need. Um, so yeah, I think that a lot of people don't understand that about INTPs and we, we can in certain situations seem like we have no idea what we're doing and we don't, but give us a minute <laughs> and we'll, we'll know, we'll know more about how to do things than, that a lot of people <laughs> so well it's like that so my PE foreman on a job site like i'm that kid who thinks he always knows better is essentially what it comes down to because i got to do things my way and i don't just do things the right way that's it's a big issue yeah it's like it kind of has to make sense to you in order to accept it at all into your mind maybe um, I had this uh, TI user I used to work with, and um, there was this really useless um, machine like um, to clean the dishes. And he's like, it makes no sense to use this. But then like our TE managers like just use it. And then he's like, but why? He's like, and then he spent like the whole time questioning it. And I'm like, <laughs> so it's like, what I think it demonstrates is like that questioning nature of TI. It's like, well, I need to question this before I can let it into my brain. Um, and it can annoy authority figures because they're like, I just want you to follow ABC and it's, but it's, it's tough cause it's not always wanted to be that way. Also, uh, Tim mentioned a really interesting point. Okay. So he talked about how, um, TI doing logic beforehand and it's interesting. So Joel mentions like the post hoc logic and I think they're both true. So I think 
A TI, what it doesn't do is in the moment logic. So I think what TE is, T, well, it does do that. Everyone does all forms of logic, but as an introverted function, introverted functions tend to post-process. So what happens is that they either do a majority before the situation or or after the situation. But um, it's, the thing is like, TE is more in the moment um, as it's happening, just picking a direction as, as the situation is unfolding. And what this causes is like, because TE, like, okay, I know this is very convoluted. I'm having a really hard time explaining it, but it's like um, TI tends to, okay, you know what? It's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, good point, Tim. Well, I think I know uh, I think where you're going with that. And I think that it's, it's, um, the way that TI post-processes and also like the pre-processing, what it is is TI has frameworks that it's constantly constructing. So when you're post-processing, you're constructing your framework. And then when you come to a moment in your life where you have to make a decision because you already have the framework built, you don't actually have to do a lot of thinking in that moment because it's really clear to see in your framework what's true and what isn't. Um, whereas I think that with TE, the thinking is being done as they're making the decision rather than TI where the thinking and the decision-making are kind of separated. Yeah. I feel like like there's a degree to which TI is known for being pretty good with language with words and all languages are built on some kind of framework. Uh, and if you just drop me off in another country where I don't speak the language, I'm not going to be able to function very well. Um, but if you give me time, I will break that framework down and I will understand it. So if I don't seem prepared, if I don't seem ready, it's because I didn't have a framework prepared ahead of time. And so anything, uh, I agree with what you're saying. Essentially, I have to experience it and then realize I wasn't ready. And then I'll go back and I will just, I will work on building a framework where now I'm comfortable because I understand what's going on, but, um, it doesn't really happen as well in the moment. Basically, TI, TI, and I guess the TIFE axis in general is like cross-contextual, whereas TE and the FI attached to it is assessing situations only based on the current context, <clears throat> which is why TE is really responsive to what it's immediately observing in the environment and how, how it can best handle with the current situation at hand to achieve what its current goal is. Yeah, I tend to think like I'm familiar with that with CES theory, CEST, the cognitive experiential, um, what is it, cognitive experiential self theory, something like that. But uh, it breaks it down. It's kind of like a left brain, right brain kind of thing. And there's a, there's there's the experiential side, and it very much seems sometimes that people with TEFI, like it's like this attitude of like I'll know it when I see it. Like they have to experience, and then they'll say this is right. You know, this is this is up to snuff, or this is what I like. And it, and it sometimes seems like people with TIFE, um, it needs to make sense in their, with their framework before they can accept it. So it's sort of more cognitive rather than experiential. I don't know. What about the word universal? Like Tim, uh, I talked to Tim before about like calling TIFE, like he, he called it universal. So, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was about to say something right along those lines, actually. We, we're, we're looking for things that are like true in all cases, regardless. 
that way when the time comes like we don't even have to really think about it really right i had like a i i, I had this idea of like th this is like an awkward analogy but if you were going to take like like translucent circles that are tinted with different colors and then sort of overlap them into a venn diagram and look in the middle and then find like sort of that common wavelength that they're all the, the, the like like what commonality that they all share and that's like the lowest common denominator sort of principle is like what ti is looking yeah. for yeah mm -hmm. an organizing principle right yeah uh -huh. i've heard it said before like it's like it's like finding something and then categorizing it until you cannot like it's so precise that it needs no more categorization. So it, you hit that universal organizational property there. And then that axiom that that can like, it's like, it's kind of like, um, you know, Antonia Dodge calls it like clean slice, clean slicing logic until you get to the finest point in that it cannot be reduced anymore. So you keep deducing, you keep deducing until it's at, in the area that it's irreducible that you've gotten to that universal property. I think that's one, so one thing that actually annoys me, at least as an INTP, is when people give me like too many details, because it's like, all we really need is the organizing principle or the gist of something mm -hmm. to begin with, right? And then we can fill in all the stuff that's inherent or implied from that. And then right. if you have any further questions, we can ask you. I think sometimes people with like SI high up in the stack will just start unpacking all this stuff that means nothing to us yet. It's like, yeah. Like, where are you going? So I, I, I agree with the details thing. I think that it's, I found that the way that I learn things best is actually um, backwards from the way a lot of people do. A lot of people want like the most foundational thing and then build on top of that and build on top of that. And then like way later, you actually learn it at the level where it's applicable to life. But for me, I can't do that because I ask the, the question why for everything. Like, why is this important to know? What is the, um, like, the thing that's important about this? So it's helpful for me to actually start kind of at the higher level so I understand why and then get more detailed and let the knowledge, the, the detailed knowledge come after the bigger picture knowledge, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think we're always asking the, the probably all of us kind of ask the why, because it's like, what is this for? It's like when Spacey was mentioning earlier about uh, the rules and doing it the quote unquote right way. Um, people often, their excuse for why it's right is because it's maybe in a rule book or it's what they were taught specifically. And that means nothing to me. What matters to me is what we're, what we're doing this for. Like, what was the, what was the essence? Why are we doing this? And, um, and that leads me to, my way of doing it is figuring out what is the shortest path to accomplishing the reason, the, you know, the purpose that we are doing this for in the first place. What's optimal? Okay, absolutely. <laughs> very, very fascinating discussion, guys. Um, so we're nearing the end of the, the chat. So I was wondering, do you guys have any closing thoughts, any questions you'd like to ask um, a group of INTPs before? It's all over. <laughs> hmm. Spacey, you're muted. Sorry, I keep forgetting. Okay, my only closing thought is that I accidentally left my iced tea in the freezer and it's probably frozen now and I just wanted it to be cold.
That's the the best closing thought ever. Oh no! It could it could be worse. You could be like me and like leave your car keys in the freezer. <laughs> but nothing happens to them in the freezer. You can't find them. <laughs> INTPs are great. <laughs> That is actually the most adorable thing ever. <laughs> so any other closing thoughts, guys? Well, I'm just like pointing. I'm just like if I'm sort of reinvited back. Up. I'll be here to listen. <laughs> all right. I'm just like counting all of the awkward silences and praying that you don't edit them out. <laughs> so that they stay in the live stream. Okay. So... <laughs> Joyce, how about this? In the email you sent me with some questions and stuff, there's something, again, about INTPs being robotic or something. Yeah, maybe when I was a kid, I was pretty robotic and monotonous or whatever, but, like, nowadays, I'm sorry, but, like, y'all are the robots. I'm, like, the least robotic. Sorry, I'm blowing that wide open. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh the, I apologize. Question. I haven't integrated as much as you have. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I think that I think there's a tendency to feel when you're young, when you're not able to sort of like if everyone else around you is being emotional and you're not able to conjure that up to feel like you're out of place, that you're a robot. But as you grow older and you get to really understand yourself and where your emotions are, they're still there. They may not be externally visible to other people. Um, you embrace that side of yourself. It's actually a, kind of like a, I've kind of seen it as a special thing that, that people can come to me with their emotional problems. And I'm like, oh, well, I can take it in and not get emo not get like visibly emotional mm -hmm. about it, but care and have concern and help in the way that's possible. So it's really kind of a gift that when you're younger, if you're around a lot of, I don't, uh, well, just types that are that, that are expecting certain things from you, you know, certain social contracts to be fulfilled, that you may feel like you're a robot, but that's um, it's really not completely true, <laughs> or true at all, really, for that matter. It's just like getting to getting to appreciate what is different about about our type. I don't think I ever resonated with feeling like a robot. I feel like some of you guys are talking about feeling like a robot when you were younger, and I was, it, believe me, it looked really weird, but was so busy trying to be liked that I um, tried to force myself to be social in, weirdly, in weird ways. And it, um, I'm actually, as weird as this may seem, I'm trying to be more robotic now, but in a calibrated way, in a way that um, my emotions are exactly what I intend and not for a show, That's my, the way I express myself. It's, it's not robotic, but it's intentional. We all have our reasons, Spacey. Oh, you know, I know what you mean about that, though, Dave. It's like sometimes, at least when you're younger, at least, you can feel like you have a lot of pressured speech or something, or like you feel pressured to express yourself in certain ways for some reason, because that's what people expect or something like that. But it comes out completely weird and unnatural. So, like, yeah. Totally. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you for addressing that INTP stereotype. <laughs> um, yeah, well, at least, Spacey, you have an ST popsicle in your refrigerator after this. Um, 
so yeah. Um, any other closing thoughts, guys? Anything you'd like to ask the INTP crew? I don't think so. Cool. Please okay. Come to my fortieth birthday party. Us, all of us, or yeah, or just the INTPs? <laughs> yeah. Why would I exclude you, Joyce? Because I'm not an INTP. I'm not as cool as you guys. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm an INTP, and I don't think that way. I don't want to come. <laughs> oh, snap. Drama. Fine. Get out of here. <laughs> That's it? Wait, how many years is it going to be until your 40th birthday? 12. 12. Nice, nice. Make sure you got a big enough calendar. <laughs> I'm not J enough for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, awesome. If if I, I will I'll keep you to your word. <laughs> and when it when you're 40, you better invite us or I'll feel betrayed. <laughs> but um thank you guys. Thank you guys for being such a wonderful group of INCPs. Um you guys and your radical honesty, you really make the world a more intellectually honest place. Um and like you, you guys brought in the intellectual categories of other people. When a thought is harmful, you guys correct it and you destroy it, you know? So that's awesome. Like destroy all the bad thoughts in the world. Like you go, you guys, like that's, you're doing a service to everyone. And I'm just happy that uh, I got to talk to you guys. It, it was like a pure joy. And Spacey has his own YouTube channel too that I'll link below. Um, his typing services are really cheap, so you should really snag it. Like it's awesome, and Spacey is a is an is a cool chill dude. <laughs> I also have a typing service, but it's more expensive than Spacey's. So, <laughs> um, you guys can also check that below. It's like seventy to a hundred dollars. Um, and yeah, I believe Dave has a podcast too. I do. I am reworking it at this moment. It'll be called The Forest and the Trees with estimated release date of August 1st. It'll be the new one. Excellent. Look out for that, guys. <laughs> and yeah, thank you, um, Joel and Tim, for being my classmates at Personality Hacker. You guys bring me that INTP goodness. I, I always feel like um, like you guys have really interesting thoughts. When I When I listen to you guys talk, I'm like, wow, these guys have really interesting ideas. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and you guys have quick wit and I always appreciate, appreciate people with quick wit. And thank you, Anthony, for bringing your Enneagram expert to the field. You really taught us the differences between Enneagram fives and nines. And I, I, you really enlightened me, me with that system. So thank you. <laughs> you really taught me a lot about it. I'm, I'm so grateful. So yeah. Y'all INTPs, um, you're just so smart, competent, you know, autonomous. Thank you for existing. Thank you for, um, thank you for being you. And mm. yeah, I'm just glad. <laughs> and thank you audience members for watching all these long videos. You the best. <laughs> so yeah, um, I'll see you guys in the next episode and bye y'all. <laughs> Bye. Bye.